lot of questions from the podcast and people asking very specific things. We waited for them to sort of uh, pile up so that they were in categories so that we could answer them properly. Uh, there was a lot of questions about food, a lot of questions about the brain, a lot of questions about hormones and body development, this type of thing. So over the next uh, three episodes, we're actually going to combine a lot of what you asked and uh, also dive deeper into areas where it seems that there's a lot of uh, information needed. And we're going to come one on one and tell you exactly what we think about those things from a genetic perspective. So today we're talking about the brain. There was a lot of stuff that was coming up in terms of the Q&A. Uh, people asking me on social media, my email, etc. Uh, various issues that they were dealing with and just out of curiosity, how things work. Um, and one of the big ones was asking about just based on the nature of the people that we deal with what does it take to succeed you know be, the nature of the high performance athletes hollywood celebrities uh we've dealt with a lot of sort of fortune 500 and 100 ceos and executive teams what were our findings and this was a really cool question because there's some things that we've done uniquely where we actually did document uh what we found um in un very unique context for example when we were raising investor dollars for our company and we needed to, you know, speak to certain people, there was a time where we were speaking to bankers or entrepreneurs, uh, various types of people, different groups that wanted to invest. Uh, and in part of that process, we would always showcase our work and, you know, go through the genetic tests and the proofs in the pudding. And so we would see in these various groups, the trends that people don't normally get to see. You don't normally get to sit down with 15 different billion dollar fund managers to see how they're wired you don't get to sit with 15 different angel investors that are coming from sort of a similar uh, tech or biotech space and to see how they think we got to see all this and it was really cool because uh the best part about what i have to tell you is we actually did find trends we found stuff unintentionally on for the most part but we did find uh you know this wow factor in terms of well this is why these people think this way so to answer that question, what does success look like? It's not the same for everybody. And I break it down sort of into three buckets, which are the three primary buckets we found. And that's the sort of uh, foundational millionaire, call it, you know, that's success, that successful millionaire. Then there's sort of the uh, artist, scientist, uh, sort of creator. Uh, and then there's the more uh, risk-seeking entrepreneur who's more like the billionaire, you know, the visionary. And these three people, man or woman, we found very similar traits. And I'll start with the millionaire. What we found was we were discussing with, I would say, a good dozen or so, 12 to 15 different fund managers, meaning these are people that were not responsible for their own money. They were responsible for other people's money. And in large volumes, I think the smallest fund was, you know, 100 million plus, but they were mostly in the billion dollar plus range, somewhere in the multi billions. Um, and so it was interesting that these people, their path to success was very different than an entrepreneur who had to create their own success. The things that they were responsible for were very different. And they needed the ability to say no unlike the entrepreneur or the visionary who needed to chase uh, success and say yes to things, they literally needed the ability to say no and their success was rooted in their ability to say no. 
their ability to look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of projects and then pick the one that really worked. Funny thing is, after all that, I'm told that their success rate is still 50%. So it's not, not much different than, you know, uh, flipping a, a coin. Um, but their wins were big wins. So what did we find? We found that foundationally, all these people seem to have the maximum experiential binding of dopamine, meaning that it was very easy for them to experience pleasure or reward. So how does that translate into that behavior? Well, if it's very easy for you to experience pleasure or reward because you bind dopamine, that chemical that allows you to feel pleasure and reward really efficiently and to a maximum degree, well, not much excites you because you're kind of satisfied anyway. You know, that whatever's going on around you is good enough. It's, it's already giving you that pleasure or reward when you're at work, when you're at play, both sides are already satisfying you. So then the things that are thrown at you don't necessarily trigger this sort of reward seeking response of like, oh, wow, I like that. Let's do this. I want to try that. Oh, let's, let's jump on this opportunity. It's more like, ah, I'm not really interested unless you really get me interested. Meaning been there, done that, seen it before. You got to really show me something that has wow factor and some sizzle to get my interest. So that was a big one. And for the most part, I would say, <coughs> excuse me, the majority of them had this trait. A majority, I mean, like if there was a dozen, probably 11 of them had this. The second thing was their comped enzyme. That's the enzyme that comes along and clears the dopamine out. When you're done with that sort of reward seeking experience. So at the time they're reviewing a presentation or in a meeting, talking to somebody, they then need to get back to normal and do whatever they're doing. And so the brilliance of how our brain works is that there's clearance enzymes that get rid of certain neurochemicals to bring you back to where you started. And they had a somewhat slower version. And I, there's, there's three options that we look at, uh, and entrepreneurially you find that, you know, some of the other sort of more, uh, visionary or risk-taking entrepreneurs will have the quicker version, meaning that they, they're able to switch gears really quick. Uh, these people are somewhat in the middle, meaning that they have a more functional experience with how long they're in that reward seeking moment. So it's not so much about that. They're, they're in it for a long time, slow comped, which would make it kind of dysfunctional because all of a sudden, not only are they not interested, but they get stuck in stuff for too long and then they miss everything. It's a very functional mid where they experience dopamine to a high degree. So they're likely to say no to most things, you know, not really get excited. But when they do find that thing that excites them, they'll truly give it its full attention that it deserves. But they're able to shift gears because that comped enzyme is somewhat quick, but not so quick that it gives them kind of that ADHD behavior, something in the middle, a functional approach to sort of clearing dopamine and coming to wherever they're supposed to be, which allowed them to handle multiple projects and multiple priorities at the same time. It allowed them to look at four or five different presentations in a day, which is part of their job and pick the one or two that they were actually interested in because they weren't excited by everything and jumping from this to that. They also weren't getting lost in one thing and ignoring everything else. They had a very functional approach to how much time and how much effort and how much weight they gave things. So these two things combined sort of packaged how they dealt with reward. We then saw 
that these people were often somewhat serotonin dysregulated, meaning that their serotonin receptor was somewhat shorter. And so they, their relationship with stimuli was somewhat off, which meant that they were more poked and prodded and responsive to stimuli. This, this also meant that they're more attention focused uh, when it came to detail. They're more, uh, they're more stimulated and more sort of um, prone to seeing the details that other people don't see. So as they were kind of risk reward treating things without this like sort of entrepreneurial spirit, but quite the opposite of like, I'm going to say no more than I say yes. They're also seeing all these nuances and details as they're diving into these reports and presentations and financial statements and picking at things with their naysaying attitude that I'm going to say no more than I say yes and finding all the things to say no to. So as they're going through the presentation, as they're going in through financial statements, they're coming back with all the problems. And what really excites them <coughs> is when they can't find the problems because their level of detail orientation drives them again to see all these nuances as they're sort of uh, tunnel vision going through and only paying attention to what they actually truly enjoy and like. They're also seeing all these nuances that nobody else sees. And so this deep analytical behavior gave them the superpower of being able to say no to more, to truly find those little red flags or warning signs that other people who are more entrepreneurial in spirit, their bosses or their clients that brought the thing to them in the first place, perhaps didn't see. The other layer that we saw in these people was their sort of relationship with meaning that although they had this tunnel vision of only paying attention to what they liked. Although they were seeing all these nuances and details, poking and prodding, prodding to them as they went down this journey of, of, what they work, of what they worked on being only what they liked. The things that bothered them didn't mean a lot. Meaning that their, their relationship with brain-derived neurotropic factor and their ability to develop neural connection, uh, their ability to, you know, neuroplasticity and brain repair also speaks to how much meaning things have, how much weight do you give them? The person that sort of slams the door and walks out the room or just listens, feels it just like the other person did, but it's not necessarily going to react. And we found that they were optimal in this area. Why was that important? Because now all of a sudden they're able to detach themselves. And this is why they're very good at working on behalf of somebody else. You know, in order to do that, you have to not feel it. You have to think it right? That, that person that brought you that package presentation, <coughs> excuse me, something to analyze or review is relying on you to think it through and truly see what needs to be seen versus feel what needs to be felt. That's what the person is feeling. That client that brought this to this billion dollar fund manager, they're feeling it and they want that person to think it. So that's what these people do is they're able to, you know, vet in the way that I've described until now, but also in a way where they're not sort of um, <coughs> applying a deep meaning to something and instead seeing it for what it is at the surface level and reacting to the information as opposed to the feeling. And this was a real superpower that allowed them to be that reliable sort of rock to lean on because they would think it through, which is exactly what the client or the boss needed. Vet this for me, right? That's really truly their job. And so this package of traits is what we saw created this sort of ultimate success in these people. Um, 
and it was consistent from one through to the other. And we've seen, again, in this time where we were going through this investment around nearly a dozen of these types of people, it's hard enough to meet one person who runs a multi-billion dollar fund, but to meet 12 of them and to find the trends are very consistent, it was a truly awesome and powerful insight for us. So now, shifting gears, that artist, that on, that person who is more the scientist, the, the creator, not the person that um, sort of is who you what we just described, rely on to vet something for you or find the problems, but the person that you're relying on to create and build. So what we learned about the scientist, the person who equally has that tunnel vision, but can't multitask. So what's going on there? We found that these people have the opposite when it came to brain drive neurotropic factors. So they actually had the uh, sort of most dysregulated version, uh, the least optimal version. So their relationship with meaning uh, was very dysregulated, which meant that that weight that they felt from every little thing, lawyer letter in the mail, a new discovery, somebody causing some kind of disruption, things meant a lot to them. So this is the difference between when you get an email from the entrepreneur and it's three words yeah okay that's literally the email because that's all they really need to communicate versus the email from the scientist where you asked a question and you got two pages of content back because that's how it means to them and they can't condense it into just the answer the power and the impact of all the science and the meaning and everything that goes behind and supports the answer means that much to them that they have to say it and they can't communicate without purveying all that so you'll see that consistent you'll you'll as you hear this you'll start to think about people that you work with and their traits and how they behave uh, but this translates into their work because when it, when it comes to something like science health uh you know art uh discovery and creation it needs to be done to its fullest extent surface level is never good enough and so these people that have this ability to dig deep and apply deep meaning to things uh, would truly create at that level. And you would find, and this is why you also find artists, scientists, picture that person that you watch in a Marvel movie or, you know, some social media video. There's kind of this neurotic tendency about them. You know, they're kind of, um, in terms of their behavior, there's a mood issue they are likely to slam the door and walk out of the meeting or yell and scream, I can't do this anymore or quit the job, you know, <clears throat> because things mean so much to them. And it's that meaning that allows them to create that deep, intense level of work, that powerful impact that the people around them rely upon to bring to the table, which is the foundation of what everything else is working on. So it's, it's this one tweak. You take that same profile of the sort of higher expression of dopamine, so they're focused on what they do, a potentially even slower comp so they're stuck in that moment for longer and they're truly binging with blinders on and then the reversed bdnf so you take one gene and flip it on itself and all of a sudden the behavior completely changes and we found this consistently over and over again with the best scientists the best researchers anyone who's tunnel vision you have the difference between a doctor and a doctor there's a doctor who all they do is see patients, meaning ask them to 
go to the front desk and provide a medication or supplement, ask them to go talk to somebody who's not a patient like the media, they can't do it. They do what they do versus a doctor, same exact role, who writes a book, who will go on stage and speak, who will also be entrepreneurial and build the brand. So they're wearing multiple hats in the exact same role. They have two very different outcomes because of this one gene and their ability to multitask, their ability to develop neural connection and, you know, not have that tunnel vision of meaning where they only do this one thing, but they do it extremely well. And it comes back to that neuroplasticity, de developing new neural connections. And can I actually develop new skills at a masterful level, you know, and multitasking amongst those new skills? Or am I really just good at doing one thing? And it's very hard for my brain to put together neuro neuro new neural pathways, new synapses to start thinking about new stuff. And it's, it becomes a challenge. And all of a sudden I stumble as I'm doing these other things, even though I'm such a brilliant person. And this is what we found over and over again <coughs> with these people and why they were so successful in that context. Then we go to the third profile, the visionary entrepreneur. And this is a person who is not so much the millionaire. They're either broke or they're a billionaire because of their relationship with risk and their ability to say yes. The opposite of what we said about the fund manager who needs to be able to say no. So they would have the opposite relationship with dopamine, dopamine. And we found over and over again, the, that visionary entrepreneur, the person that built something from scratch, that the person that put all their money where their mouth is, uh, the person that was able to shift gears and change industries and relearn something uh, and saw the benefit offering being offered to the client as opposed to the process. That person has the least binding of dopamine. They don't experience pleasure or reward really well. And they often have a faster version of the Compt enzyme. So even when they are in a reward speaking <coughs> or pleasure seeking experience, it doesn't last that long. And so they need it more and more and more. And they may jump between multiple things and they may run multiple businesses and they may wear multiple hats within those different businesses. So we find over and over again that these people because of their relationship with reward will take bigger risks. So unlike the millionaire, uh, who runs the billionaire fund, you know, they're getting paid in the millions, but they're running billions of dollars for other people who needs to be able to say no, this person needs to be able to say yes, they need to be able to take that risk that warrior versus the warrior. And that's literally what it is. We refer to it as warrior genetics, this profile of somebody who will run in the front line straight into the battle versus the warrior who sits up on a hill, watches and strategizes and comes up with the best plan, right? So very, two very different sets of genetics. So again, the, that serotonin that we talked about, that's one place where we uniquely found that both sets of people were the same. The people that succeeded in both, you know, I, I think in terms of billions, but I earn in the millions and the person that is like, I don't care about money, but I may make a billion dollars. Uh, their serotonin is the same because both need that high attention to detail. What they do with it is slightly different, but they both have this innate capacity of processing detail <coughs> at a high level. Uh, and so then we move on to an area that we didn't touch in the sort of billionaire fund manager is their relationship with 
um, imprinting negative stimuli and trauma. And what we find with the person who is more reward seeking and taking risks and building and but ultimately succeeding, you know, there's a lot of people that take risks that, that don't get anywhere. But the people that actually succeed, the people that actually do build that billion dollar enterprise or shift from one industry to another and make it in both, they also are somewhat dysregulated for what's called adrotubi or their noradrenaline response. Their ability to actually ignore or bind pain and trauma. And these people to some degree do bind that trauma. They do hold on to pain. They're less likely to forget. They're more likely to hold the grudge. So why is that important? Because when it comes to dealing with people, they have that heightened level of emotional intelligence, that heightened level of the ability to sort of read the room and know what people are feeling. They know how to speak to somebody. They know how to make the deal. These people, again, you have that weight on your shoulders of building from scratch an enterprise, which means that you are also where you're always wearing a hat before finding the person to pass it on to, which means you've ultimately worked with everybody in order to build this thing. And in that part of it is this, is how do you deal with people? And the people that, you know, people comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and in terms of personality, and you need to be able to deal with all of them in order to, to, to succeed as a building from scratch entrepreneur to ultimately finding some sort of success. And that that's the one nuance we found, the difference between that, you know, warrior that says yes, that will take the risk versus the person that, act, but didn't succeed versus the person that has that, but did make it somehow. And that was the one thing that they were able to lean on that got them there. Because <clears throat> not only did they take the risk, seek reward, but they also understood their place. They understood how to deal with people. They understood when they were pushing too hard, when to pull back, how to manage, how to sell, how to keep teams happy, because they could read people emotionally. They held on to the pain and trauma from all their past mistakes. They didn't make those mistakes again. Although they would try, they would take the risk. They wouldn't take that same risk twice if it failed them. This was a major, major factor in the difference between success and failure. So those are the three buckets of what we've learned. And I'm sure there's more. We can go into this and spend hours just on this. But at a high level to answer your question. Um, so somebody else asked about depression. And we're going to dive into that. And they asked, why is it that, you know, there's some people that get depressed, but you don't even know. And there's some people that get depressed and it's debilitating. Like it, it's their identity, right? It, it derails their whole life. But both people felt depressed. What's the difference there? So in our research, we're trying to identify and nuance the labels a little more. Depression as a blanket, you know, doesn't really describe what these different people that this question is asking about are and who they are. They're not the same. Depression isn't one thing. And same with most mood and behavior issues. And I can talk about two buckets to give you an idea. So there's people like I previously suffered from what we call chronic de depression, meaning it's not debilitating. The people around you may not even know, but it keeps happening right? It's, it's constant. It's a part of your identity, but you're still functioning. You're still going to work with a smile, but as soon as you turn things off, it's there. It's a part of who you are. And by the way, there's a way to resolve that. I don't have this issue anymore. 
Then there's the more acute. That's the person who you see it and you know it and they're, they can't get out of bed. You know, it's, it's derailing their life. Uh, but it may not be an ongoing consistent thing. It may be episodic. It happens for certain reasons, a certain time. It may not happen for a couple of years and then all of a sudden it hits them again. So what's going on there? This comes back to the relationship with dopamine and the different ways in which people experience pleasure and reward. For the person who has the, let's talk about the chronic first. So for the person who has the, call it uh, minimum dopamine binding, who it's hard for them to experience pleasure and reward. Well, for them, if they are in a context where there is no reward or pleasure, then depression is probably their option because they're not feeling. They already don't feel enough when it comes to, you know, the world around them. And then <coughs> they all of a sudden aren't getting a hit, you know, um, and so they're not feeling anything. And so that would lead to this depressed state. But because it's so easy for them to get triggered by reward and because they're already at this low state most of the time anyway, that delta value between where they're normally at and the pleasure that they may get from certain things, it's a very small gap. So even when they're feeling pleasure, it's to a very low degree. So they're not used to, you know, they haven't sort of tasted the fruit of what pleasure can actually be, right? Uh, they're experiencing it at a very low level. And when they do, it's very quick. It doesn't last very long. So that gap between what pleasure means to them and what the lack of pleasure is at, a, at any given moment, small difference. So although they don't feel good and there's this constant sort of, ah, life isn't that great. I'm not happy, but I'll just go do my thing. I'll get to work. I'll talk to you. I'll still smile because the difference between pleasure and no pleasure is so little, but it's consistent. It's a consistent reaching the bottom, reaching the bottom, reaching the bottom, but reaching the top doesn't really mean a lot unless they go down this high entrepreneurial path or deep into addiction where they're really feeling that elevated sense of that thing. And obviously you would want to push yourself towards that reward versus the addiction. If you feel like this sounds like you. So now you take the person who has the maximum dopamine binding for whom it's very easy to feel pleasure and reward. And they're constantly feeling good about what's going on. So now you take that person and all of a sudden take the reward away, put them into a COVID lockdown <coughs> where everything's taken away. I can't go to restaurants. I can't see my friends. I can't go to school. I work online and there's no personal relationships anymore. The Delta value for them between where they're normally at for pleasure and what they're now experiencing, there's a crash because that gap is so much bigger. It's this acute response of like, I feel horrible. I'm depressed. I can't do anything. This is too much for me. How can I be in lockdown for six months and not see anybody? So the gap or the difference between I feel depressed and why we say that it can mean multiple things. It's the difference between what is good mean for you and what does bad mean for you. There's a different that gap between that Delta is the difference between chronic and acute, right? That difference between I'm rarely much beyond this anyway. So I'm kind of used to it versus 
I never feel upset. Everything's good. But the day you make me feel, take my pleasure away, pull the rug out from under me, the crash that it causes and the, that, that void for me means so much. So it's this acute response. Now you lay, sprinkle on top of that other things. You sprinkle on top of that, you know, the um, inability to deal with trauma and pain at a functional level, what we talked about earlier. For that person who's having that acute response, if it's also triggered by pain, <coughs> excuse me, and they're holding on and recalling the pain of last time because they imprint, well, then all of a sudden the meaning just meant became so much more for that incident, right? If there's a second lockdown, oh, wow, it's happening again. And they're remembering all the pain from last time versus the person for whom doesn't really bind, doesn't have a PTSD response. Their adder to be connection is great. The I-I version, as we call it, the two alleles, the I-I. For that person, it's not the same thing over again. So it's not compounding on itself. It's another incident, which is experienced at the same level as the first incident, versus I'm now stacking pain. I'm now adding trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. So every time it's going to mean more and more and more. And this is why you sometimes see this depression journey, which looks like it's exponential the, the deeper you get into it. So the solution isn't about symptom masking. It's about starting to extract those layers as they are stacked. I mean, you can't deal with it as just one thing of depression, but you have to first remove the trauma and pain, deal with that first. Then you have to deal with the pleasure response. Then you have to deal with that person's gap between the good and bad day. Uh, and if you deal with the sort of functional pieces of depression versus this feeling that the person has, you can truly at the root cause start to peel back the layers of the onion and bring them back to where they want to be. So let's talk about another area that a lot of people ask about, which is anxiety. Uh, and again, another area where we don't talk about it as one thing, you know, and this again, I'm not saying that this is uh, psychiatric work, psychology, uh, what your doctor is going to tell you. I'm telling you that this is the, these are the buckets that we put people in, in terms of genomic profiles, the actual neurochemicals that drive behavior and what we've witnessed and what profiles we've seen. Meaning, you know, when this research started, <coughs> we didn't know how many different types of neurochemical profiles there would be, but we started to find those trends that people sort of fit in these buckets. And that's what we're speaking of. And also in terms of anxiety. So in terms of anxiety, what we see is that again, it's not one thing. There's people that for whom their anxiety defines them. It's, it's a constant. And there's some people for whom it actually, um, drives them meaning that they don't even realize the thing that is their tool to success is actually a burden on them and it's a stressor and it's not till they sit back and have a problem that they realize. And I'll describe that and explain it. It's, it's the difference between this high functioning anxiety and a low functioning anxiety, which is, and there's more to the anxiety than that. But if I give you these two big buckets, it deals with the bulk of it and you'll start to find yourself in these buckets if you're, if you're having an issue. So the difference, we're going back to the exact same profiles that we've already spoken of, but just talking about a different context. So again, the warrior, the warrior is the person who is pursuing and chasing reward. 
their dopamine dopamine response causes them to want more to to take bigger risks if that person is also serotonin dysregulated where the details and nuances mean a lot to them and they're also adrenaline to be dysregulated where they're feeling the trauma and pain and holding on to the emotional intelligence well they're going to feel something that we call high functioning anxiety meaning that <clears throat> it's kind of like that fire in the gut that you leave a meaning and there was 10 action items spoken of and you just can't rest until they're done right that that feeling that you remember everybody else's work you remember the details of what notes were taken down you remember that when in this team this person was supposed to do this this person was supposed to do this that you remember their work as much as you remember your own because your anxiety is driving you to function at a higher level high <clears throat> high functioning anxiety meaning you're anxious about all these details so first of all you're reward seeking but because you think in high level of detail you can't let much go you seem to you you think about a lot more than the average person <clears throat> because you're also feeling it it literally creates this visceral sense this sensorial anxiety feeling of you're feeling your work you're feeling success or lack thereof you're feeling the notification notification and what you're expecting back from other people so all of this you know stacking on the reward seeking behavior the attention to detail being driven through emotion causes you to feel your work that anxious feeling that anxiety but it's a high functioning anxiety so most people that are in this bucket don't identify as being anxious they identify as being driven this is why i'm good at what i do but you're also burning yourself out you're also taking on too much and you're also doing too much and you're also thinking and feeling too much you know the outcomes of suffering from anxiety without knowing that that's what you're doing i fall in this bucket by the way and i learned this about myself <clears throat> and why when we're sitting in a meeting and a week from now somebody says no we didn't talk about that and i say flip your book to page 2 and look at the top line and it's the exact note of what we're talking about because my attention to detail is so high that i'm literally watching what people are writing down as we're in the meeting and remembering where in their book that they wrote it when they talk about it a week later that's what we call high functioning anxiety meaning that it it sounds like a superpower which it is if you utilize it but if you are in the wrong context imagine the frustration that could be caused imagine the pain that you would feel i use it to my benefit that's why you know you kind of thrive and flourish if you take what you have and put it in the right context it will drive success it will drive what you want change the context you know if i wasn't able to make decisions and you know uh sort of lead the projects through but instead was being driven in directions where i was my thinking was being squashed the amount of frustration and anxiety i would feel and not being able to talk about the details express what i remembered it would be debilitating so if you sound or if you hear what you've been feeling you may now start to understand that this is driven by neurochemicals uh, and the way you behave <clears throat> differently than other people is driven by this and again context will determine if this equals greatness or weakness use it to your advantage or let it crush you then there's low functioning anxiety 
again, exact same profiles we talked about, the warrior, the person for whom everything uh, is sort of um, requires deep thought, deep binging, uh, things last too long, they're in the moment for too long, and they get lost in the pain or trauma of something. So this person, unlike the high functioning anxiety person who again is shifting gears, fast comp enzymes, so clearance of neurochemicals, so it closes quick so they can look at everything, experience everything, remember everything, take a piece of everything, wear all these different hats. This person is more tunnel vision and everything else frustrates them. So the anxiety caused by being pulled away from the thing that they're focused on. From, hey, I'm the scientist that's good at what I do. I'm going to do a really good job at what I do. But tell me to do something else and I'm going to start to feel anxious. Because I'm binging on where I'm at. My reward and my pleasure comes from that thing and that thing only. And because my comp enzyme is slow, I need to spend a lot of time on it. I need to dive deep. I need to binge on it. And if you pull me away from that, it causes this anxious response. And it's not a high functioning, I want to go do everything type response. It's a more low functioning where I can't do anything now. It literally creates the exact opposite effect of like, you've just ruined my day and I can't function now. And now I'm just going to think about all the problems I have. So for this person, again, context is key. The context of wearing multiple hats, doing multiple jobs, you know, being in a sort of high paced startup type environment where you're expected to shift gears uh, and make quick decisions <clears throat> and take on things when you have little to no instruction or no structure, extremely frustrating, extremely anxiety inducing. You need the opposite. You need that tunnel vision, that focus, the complete structure of like, here's your job. Here's the due date. Here's exactly what needs to be done. And just go do that. The sense that uh, the alleviation of anyone that's listening right now that feels like that sounds like Zen to me, you know, that you may be that person that the, your reward seeking behavior uh, is not there because uh, your dopamine binding is so high. So you have more of this worrier type response. And again, if you start to layer into there, the serotonin, yes, it leads to reward seeking or sorry, detail seeking uh, response, but it also leads to irritability. It also leads to frustration. So in this person, it's going to express more as like, I'm irritated, I'm bothered, I'm frustrated versus I'm seeing all the details. Both are being prompted by stimuli. Both are being triggered by stimuli, but one is being prompted by the details that their high functioning anxiety is causing them to see and experience and give value to. <coughs> and one is being triggered by the irritability or the, the weight or the trauma of all these details. You're bothering me. You're making too much noise. You're chewing too loud. That's what they're experiencing by the exact same neurochemical because of their relationship with reward. So you can now start to see that anxiety and both of these people are experiencing it. Both of them may not even know they are, but at a very different degree and in very different contexts, it can either be functional or be dysfunctional, depending if you're using it to your advantage or if you're putting yourself in a context where it's a major disadvantage. So another really cool question that somebody asked <clears throat> had to do with um, what we call the hamster wheel response. And a lot of people experience this where 
and it came in different contexts. Some people say I can't sleep at night because of this. Some people say I can't function in relationships because of this. Some people said that I can't get my work done because of this. And what is this? It's the hamster wheel. It's that voice inside your head that won't stop talking. That you're overanalyzing, that you're way overthinking, that you can't sleep at night because you're resolving whatever happened during the day in your head. And that voice keeps talking to you and reliving the conversation. And more people than you think go through this. Whether it's, again, preventing them from sleeping or whatever it is, it's often a crutch because you're not using it to your advantage. You're in the wrong context and it's becoming a weight. So what's going on there? Well, it's rooted in BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. And the people that had the suboptimal version we spoke of earlier give things more meaning. So the details of what happened during the day or the conversation that you just had or the meeting you just left, some people can walk away from that and just get to work and do their thing. Some people need that voice in their head to keep reliving the moment so that they can analyze it deeper and deeper and deeper and rethink every detail and nuance. So their BDNF is suboptimal and which is why their relationship with sort of, again, neuroplasticity we talked about isn't the best and their ability to develop new synapses. So they're trying to force this new information into their limited pathways, the ones that they developed. So they have really super powered highways, but not that many paths, not that many roads. And they're not good at developing new ones, which leads to this sort of tunnel vision behavior, but masterful work in this tunnel vision because they developed this neural connection so powerfully. These people are also serotonin dysregulated. So again, they're seeing all the details and nuances and which makes them think even deeper about that hamster wheel of that thought, you know, what's going on in their head. They often feel more, right? So the, the feeling or the, it's the weight of the thing and the feeling of the thing, the combination. So when somebody said something to them, when they said that, oh, this wasn't done right, uh, we need this done by next week and it has to look like this which basically is the same as saying it didn't look like this, which could be taken as offensive for a certain personality, personality driven by certain neurochemicals. So all of a sudden you feel offended and all of a sudden you feel like you, you think you can do it, but they think you didn't do it. And you start to think about the conversation and you start to think about everything they said and what you could have said and what you should have said and what you said that was wrong and what we said that was embarrassing. And what you said that wasn't what you really meant to say. That spinning of that hamster wheel, again, caused by giving the thing too much meaning to begin with, brain drive neurotropic factor is off. Giving too much weight to the details and nuances, serotonin is off. Feeling too much to begin with because adder2b is off. And all of a sudden you start to, now the, the one key difference, again, going to the reward seeking behavior, does this become dysfunctional where it's a weight and a burden or does it become functional where it drives you towards something? Again, that high functioning, low functioning comes back to the dopamine. So if you're low dopamine, it becomes high functioning where this drives you to want to do the thing better. This drives you to want to just get it, be the best and prove that person wrong versus the low functioning of you convincing yourself of what all the problems were and focusing on the problems and not wanting to do them again 
and making sure same mistake isn't made twice. You're not going to embarrass yourself again and focusing all on all of what went wrong as opposed to what you're going to do right next time. So very different outcome. Comes back again to, and you can see that we've spoken of several different things here in several different contexts. It's the same neurochemicals that drive all of them. So all of a sudden you go from this gene means this, this gene means that to what does the pathway look like? What context is a person in? And then all of a sudden you can start to predict behavior. Not only that, but for people that feel like they're having a mood and behavior issue, as opposed to masking the issue, you can start to understand why it happens. You can start to unpack the neurochemicals that stack not only the why, but the different pieces of the why. Because in everything that we spoke of today, there wasn't one magic bullet that caused it. There was layers that stacked on. And the layers nuanced the thing. The difference between low functioning, high functioning. Again, in the last example we just spoke of, there was three, four genes that equal the trait, but then one at the end would take you in one direction or the other. Everything else was the same. So understanding the influencing or supporting characters that drive direction and the relationship between the different neurochemical pathways, as you start to understand that you yourself can predict how this applies because you understand what the innate uh, tool is, what the innate <coughs> instruction of that gene is and what is it doing to your body. And then that you layer that onto the context and what may happen in that context. And all of a sudden you can start to self-heal or help the people around you, even if you didn't have their genomics, because you can start to recognize the traits. So last thing I'll just touch on uh, for today, you know, the question came up was like, how do I, how does my, how do I make my brain work better? How do I feel better? And of course, as we talked about multiple things, it's not one answer. Um, but there are certain things that in a general sense, uh, help with brain health. And I, when I talk about brain health, I'm talking about that sort of homeostasis, that middle ground of mood and behavior. If you feel like you're going to have the stressors, if you're going to have the loads that cause you to get into that either low or high functioning state where you, that you don't want to be in. And those things are for the most part free. They're just things you can do yourself. Meditation is a big one. You know, the most major religions ask for you to pray several times a day. And yes, there's the dogma of, you know, remembering your Lord, if that's what's important to you. But there's also what your body actually needs that pause and detachment from the world around you and to re allow your brain to rest. Your brain needs to nap in between, especially if you're at high pace. And that meditation allows things to settle down to that foundational level and where they're supposed to be. It allows all the, then that sort of compound effect of the cortisol and all the other hormones and chemicals to settle down because your thoughts alter what's happening in your body. If you don't agree with that, go think of something arousing and see how you feel. Instant, your body changes. Your thoughts affect your chemicals and your hormones and how you feel. So meditation is a big one. Another big one is connection with people. You know, the more you are able to, in a healthy way, engage with people, and this starts with understanding mood and behavior and what may make things unhealthy for you and moving away from those things, the better you're going to feel and the more functional you're going to be. Connection to people is a foundational piece of health. In fact, it's been proven that in countries where people live the longest, in countries where people have the best mental health conditions, there's more communal activity. People live together, work together, eat together. 
So that's a very important part of sort of foundational mood and behavior health. Then there's things you can do more at the sort of biohacking level, like temperature dysregulation, you know, cold therapy, hot therapy, literally taking a cold plunge and what that does for your neurochemicals and the reset and optimizing them. That ice bath, which, you know, you may not want to just jump in, but build yourself up to it uh, and what that will do for you. And the heat getting into a sauna, you know, whether it's infrared or steam or whatever it is, but that temperature dysregulation and what it does for you, uh, optimal range for neurochemicals and making you feel at your best. Great thing you can do. Then there's supplements. There's very basic supplements that are on the shelf everywhere we go. Things like L-theanine that just make you feel good, raise your dopamine levels up, make you feel happy if that's your problem. Uh, there's a lot of great chemicals that, uh, sorry, uh, companies that now have taken neurochemicals and understood instead of masking the pain of anxiety or you know depression, let's start to optimize neurochemical pathways. And you'll find a lot of supplements out there. I don't even need to, need to recommend. You can do a super simple Google search. Uh, companies like Qualia that make great things for the mind. Um, you know, even with us, the DNA company, there's a lot of formulas you produce for the brain. But there's there's so many more options and supplements in the last couple of years than there were three or four years ago that do the work at the level we're describing. So as opposed to here's your anxiety pill, here's your neurochemical balancer. Here's the thing that will make you feel the way you're supposed to feel. So we're not masking the symptom. We're not trying to suppress, you know, and bring down that pain point. We're instead trying to raise you up and bring the neurochemicals to where they're supposed to be so that you feel good and you don't need to suppress anything. And there's plenty of plenty of stuff out there. You know, go to any sort of biohacker blog uh, and you'll find uh, great mental health stuff. So with that, I mean, there's so many more questions. We can go on for another couple hours. Maybe we'll make another episode out of it. Uh, but these were four big buckets that we saw a lot of people asking over and over. Thank you for joining us again today, guys. We're going to be back with another couple episodes uh, where we're going to dive more into your Q&A. See you then.